Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a special episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, not far from the site of the infamous earthquake game between LSU and Auburn that shook the ground of Tiger Stadium and the LSU campus in Baton Rouge, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas a town that was briefly renamed Arcopolis during a land dispute in 1821. Thank you for joining us for Episode 13, State of California versus Kevin Cooper, Part 2. We'll be discussing the developments in Cooper's case after his request for DNA, DNA testing was granted in May of 2001, including Cooper's continuing claims of evidence manipulation and tampering, and allegations that he was framed for the Ryan Hughes murders. As always, this is a live show, and calls are always welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. How are you doing tonight, Michael? I'm doing good. How about you? Pretty good. I made it here on time. So I'm proud. I got to pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. I, <laughs> definitely <laughs> always good when we start on time. But I mean, a lot of people don't understand how much it goes into you know trying to get started on time. This is actually a you know this isn't just a once a night thing. You know, you still have to do everything leading up to the show to be able to make sure it's a good show. So definitely, you know, right, right. directly at 8 o'clock in this case, it's pretty darn good. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was what happened Thursday night. I was trying to, you know, keep researching. I have actually spent about two weeks on Cooper's case. And, I mean, you really have to spend at least that much time because, I mean, there's so many intricacies to it. Correct. Correct. So, uh, how how was your week? Uh, it was pretty good, you know. Uh, I worked. I uh, worked the whole day job and then pretty much came home and, Worked on stuff for the radio. Uh, got ready for the big show this Saturday night. 
at the Valiant Arena in Tuckerman. Uh, got a big show coming up at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, Saturday night, 5 p. $5 to get in the doors. Kids six and under are free. So definitely if you're in the Arkansas area, feel free to come up and uh, check out some good family action. Great, great. I would come, but I'm in New Orleans, so. Yeah, yeah, you're a little. I have to you're, miss you're it. You're a little ways away. Yeah, although I, I would, I one of these days I would like to see Bad Brad doing you, his thing. Uh, we definitely <laughs> got a few. We've definitely got a few uh, videos of old Bad Brad up on the uh, website. To keep you to keep you entertained, but there's nothing like Bad Brad Live. He's definitely a uh, character. Oh, definitely, definitely. All yeah. right, so People versus Kevin Cooper in part two. Yeah. You ready to start? Yes, ma'am. Let's go ahead and uh, remind everybody what happened last week. Okay. Uh, Doug and Peggy Ryan were uh, chiropractors in uh, Southern California. Uh, They lived in Chino Hills. They had a ranch where they raised Arabian horses. They had a son, Josh, who was eight, and a daughter, Jessica, who was ten. They had a quiet life. Everybody loved them. Uh, they were, like I said, they were chiropractors, but they had been successful enough that they didn't really need to work as much, and they were able to follow their passion with the Arabian horses. Um, one night in June, uh, June 4th, 1983, they went to a barbecue. Uh, a friend of Josh's named Chris Hughes got permission to spend the night at the Ryan house with Josh, and Shortly after they came home from the barbecue and went to bed, Kevin Cooper, who had escaped from the Chino Institute for Men, which was about two miles from the Ryan home, uh, came into the house and attacked Doug and Peggy in bed, killed them, then killed Jessica, who came in to investigate the scream she heard, and then killed Chris and attacked Josh and nearly killed him. He was the sole survivor. Uh, Cooper was on the run for about around two months, and then he was captured in Santa Barbara Barbara after raping a woman at Knife Point. Uh, It was... He had been in California Institute for Men for some burglaries in Los Angeles, where he had been arrested under the alias David Troutman. And the Los Angeles police or sheriff, I'm not sure which jurisdiction it was, the Los Angeles court system and the Chino system had not realized that David Troutman was really Kevin Cooper, who had a long history of not only trouble with the law, but with escaping from mental institutions, and custody whenever he had scrapes with the law. Right, uh, right. As far as he, he had fled to Mexico. Out, right? 
Pardon? Yeah, he had hit out. He hit out for two days. Correct. He hit out for two days in. I mean, you know, the guy gets gets put into minimum security because David Troutman in Pennsylvania had no criminal record. He was a mental patient. Cooper had stolen his ID. I don't know if we covered that part last uh, last you know last show, but he had stolen this other mental patient's ID and used it in California. And um, so he had no history. So Cooper goes to minimum security and just walks away the following day. Um, and Chino, with, Chino had a bad uh, – Chino's security measures were not up to par in 1983. The new warden was uh, – she had, had identified the problems and, and identified ways to fix those problems, but none of it had been implemented yet. And uh, her name was Midge Carroll, and she's going to come into play a little bit later in the show. Right, right. And so, uh, the, if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm just trying to place events together, so he hides out in the mm-hmm. house, murders Correct. the family, and then he heads to Mexico. Correct. Successfully gets away for what is it about? two or three months, and then is only caught because he raped a woman, correct? Right. And and he actually, he only spent, um, he didn't spend very long in Mexico. I think he spent less than five days in Mexico. And then he gets on a boat headed back to California. Which, you know, pardon? Can't say I blame him. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I just, you know, if you're, go, if you're going to flee to Mexico, you need to stay there. Yeah, right. <clears throat> but, uh, if you successfully you know, he, get away with murder, you probably need to just go ahead and live whatever semblance of a life you are going with. Right. But I, I don't think he's really capable of doing that. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, um, you know, like I said, he thinks he can talk his way out of anything. And he probably has had that ability. I mean, he's been able to talk himself out of criminal charges in Pennsylvania to get put in a mental hospital so he can escape. So, hey, why not try and talk himself out of, you know, four capital murder or first-degree murder charges and an attempted first-degree murder charge in California. Very true there, but, you know, I I mean, I think it breaks down simpler than that. The guy may just be an adrenaline junkie, and he just likes messing around with people. That may be. I I think, you know, in listening, I've I've had a chance to listen to some of his – they're not really interviews. They're, you know, softball – situations where people give him the give him the floor and he you know takes it and says his piece and is never challenged about anything uh and i really think he's he's highly manipulative and he's very adept at uh sounding sincere and playing the victim 
And if you read some I, of yeah. his writing, you'll you'll see, you know, um, it's not, you know, it, it's not the choices he made. It's being oppressed because of his race. Well, not the choices I mean, that he made. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people, unfortunately, tend to uh, rush to that defense. Even, and I mean, in some cases, it's an accurate, you know, thing. <clears throat> but at the same time, everybody seems to want to use that defense. Correct, and you know, I mean, I understand. I, I don't, I don't say that. You know, the, the whole world and the system is fair to people of color, people with foreign backgrounds. I know that. I understand that. But if you make bad choices, you have to you have to be accountable for those bad choices and not say you made those bad choices because the world is not fair. Because the world's not Absolutely. fair, life is not fair. You know, a fair, you eat cotton candy and you ride the Ferris wheel. Yeah, if if this is the case and we don't have to, you know, answer for or have accountability for our actions, I mean, shoot, I'm going to rob the nearest millionaire. Right, right. So so anyway, back to Cooper's case. Um, The evidence against Cooper at his trial in 1984 it ended in 1985, was pretty strong. There was evidence connecting the lease house where Cooper had hidden out to the Ryan house and to the Ryan stolen station wagon. And there were a lot of uh, people have come forward prior to the trial and, and in post-conviction and said they'd seen, they've seen, they saw the station wagon the night of the murders, but I, I want to remind people who are of that generation that may not recall and people of the younger generation who may not understand. In 1983, station wagons were the SUVs of the world. Families who didn't have station wagons were unusual. Every time I think of a station wagon, I think of vacation. Right, exactly. Um, my family, my you know, neither one, neither my mother or father liked station wagons and would not own one. And, you know, we were one of the few families on our block who didn't have a station wagon. And there's well, nothing mean, like riding with taste. in that cargo area in the back, looking out the back window. Uh-huh. <laughs> Laying down <laughs> with no seat belts. <laughs> yep. But um yeah, so you know seat belt laws, folks. <laughs> and and another thing people may not realize because it's not quite as prevalent now as it used to be as it was back then. In the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, all GM cars looked alike. So a Chevy Nova and an Oldsmobile Omega, same body, same style. Some of the detailing was a little different. But I used to have police officers. I drove an Oldsmobile Omega, 
I used to have police mm-hmm. officers call it a Chevy Nova. I got a ticket yeah. once, and the cop the wrote road Chevy road. Nova, and we defeated the ticket because she wasn't driving a Chevy Nova. Here's the registration. Huh. That's awesome. So, That's awesome. so a, a the Ryan's Buick station wagon, Buick was a GM product. The Ryan's Buick station wagon would have looked like the Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't Everybody know if Chevrolet had... Cruiser from that 70s show. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's, you know, just put that out there. I didn't go into it when we talked in part one, but station mm-hmm. wagons were the SUVs. Everybody had one. Yeah, I so, mean, um, go ahead. You know, you can't blame them. These are our parents. You know, <laughs> you can't blame them for their lack of taste. Well, no, I mean, in you know, in in the nineteen seventies and eighties, because you weren't you weren't even born then. No, nope. God it makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> you had pickup trucks. You had compact cars. You had sedans, and some of them could be on the big side, like your Cadillacs and your uh, your Buicks uh, had some pretty big sedans, uh, or a station wagon. If you had, you know, more than three children, and they did any kind of sports, you needed a station wagon so to haul all that stuff around. No, not really. Vans were full size. Oh wow! I mean, you know, full size, uh, eighteen. That was the van. Minivans like didn't thing. come out. Right, minivans didn't start coming out till the late eighties, early nineteen nineties. Okay. And even then, they weren't quite. They weren't that many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they yeah. weren't. They were very unstylish. They made a station wagon look good. Well, I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, how stylish are minivans? I don't think there's too yeah. many uh, models out there trying to I, drive station wagons. Well, I don't know. My my um, my sister and brother-in-law had a uh, gosh, which one was it? It was, I think it was the, um, I think it was the Chrysler. Town and country, uh-huh. and it was nice. Right. I, I mean, I even got when I lived in Arkansas and flew home. I would pick that up in in Thibodeau and drive that to New Orleans. So, right. yeah, that was that. You know, nineteen um, in nineteen eighty seven. My ex-husband got a Dodge Astro van through work. So uh-huh. that was, you know, so, and that was, it wasn't a minivan. It was kind of a medium van. It wasn't right. quite as big as the 18 van, but it mm-hmm. still drove like a big van. Right, almost like a pickup truck. Right, correct. So yeah, the the choices you didn't have, uh, like I said, you didn't have SUVs. Yeah, and, you exactly. know, the minivans. The minivans took over in the 1990s, 
mm-hmm. and early, maybe you know, early early two thousands, and then the SUVs came came on the scene and took over the world. So, I just remember I wanted a minivan when I was young because I knew you could watch TV in them. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. <laughs> That was, yeah, that was in the 2000s. Now they're um, making cars with Wi-Fi in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Well, that's because the phones, you know, the phones have go- are going so out of control. It, that's very true. That's very true. <laughs> so, but, um... So, uh, the, the evidence against Cooper, uh, there were... Uh, there was a blood stain in the Ryan house in the hallway opposite the master bedroom door that was consistent with Cooper's blood type from based on multiple testing, types of tests. Um, there were burrs under Jessica's nightgown, and similar burrs were found in on a blanket in the lease house. Uh, hair similar to Jessica's was found in the lease house sink in the bathroom, and hair similar to Doug was found in the shower in that same bathroom. The hatchet used in the murders was found in weeds leading from the Ryan home toward the interstate, and it had blood consistent with the victims and had come from the lease houses identified by uh, the lease residents, residents of the lease house as being the hatchet that they kept in the house, which after Cooper left was missing. And then prison issued tobacco and hand rolled cigarettes were found in the Ryan vehicle. Similar tobacco and uh, cigarettes were found in the lease house. There was evidence that whoever committed the murders went back to the lease house to clean up because there was shower uh, blood found by luminol in the shower and footprints on the shower sill for Kevin Cooper's. And then luminol also revealed uh, foot impressions and blood on a rug between the bathroom and the bedroom going from the bathroom to the Bilbia bedroom where Lisa, where uh, Cooper hid out. So uh, that's kind of a that's kind of a summary. So that connects all of the scenes together, and the blood drop alone places Cooper in the Ryan house. Right. I mean, this isn't one of them cases where you can be like, "Oh, everything's circumstantial." This is like. It's right there in front of you. Really, how well, can you draw any other conclusion? It, it, it still is. It still is circumstantial. What makes it so strong is that Cooper denies ever being in the Ryan house, and he denies ever being in the Ryan station wagon. And so, finding his blood in the house or saliva consistent with him on cigarette butts found in the station wagon, in addition to the prison tobacco, is a stronger circumstance than 
if, you know, if he had said, oh, well, I went in the house, nobody was home, I grabbed some bills off the counter and left, then the blood drop in the hallway would lose some of its meaning or some of its strength. Because if he admits to being yeah. in the house, he can't say when the blood was, was left there. So, but, um, I mean, it is it is circumstantial. It's not direct evidence such as from an eyewitness that places him in the house. It's circumstantial. But it's a stronger circumstance because he denies ever being in the house or the car. So even though it's, even though it's DNA evidence, it's still considered circumstantial? Correct. It is uh, direct. The only direct evidence would be video, audio, that you can see with your own eyes, or a an eyewitness who okay. saw with their own eyes. That That's the only direct evidence. Or an admission. See, I won't... I've always had this thought, and I think I think a lot of people have this thought that DNA is the be all end all for stuff. And we're, I mean, we've seen in several cases that it's not the be all end all. In Rodney Reed, mm-hmm. they claim his DNA doesn't mean anything because they were having an affair. True. True. And uh, as we'll see later in Kevin Cooper. He's also claiming the DNA does not mean anything. Okay. Okay, I see your point. So, and then uh, at Cooper's trial, and, and this is important too because at Cooper's trial, Cooper's attorneys criticized the investigation. They criticized the testing of evidence. They criticized the the sheriff's department for failing to test evidence, for failing to follow leads. Uh, They had people who testified about three men in the Canyon Corral bar on the night of the murders. They had witnesses who claimed to have seen the station wagon with three white males in it on the night of the murders. Uh, They pointed toward Josh's initial statements about three white or Hispanic men committing the murders. They alleged that Josh had been coached and that his later statements were the products of uh, being influenced by family members, psychologists, police, making him say what they wanted him to say because they were focused on Kevin Cooper. Uh, And we also have to remember Kevin Cooper had Dr. Edward Blake, who was one of the foremost uh, serologists, uh, evidence, forensic evidence people in the country. And he has worked on a lot of, of, of defense cases as well as a lot of post-conviction cases helping uh, people get DNA testing to prove their innocence. And John Thornton, who's also a, uh, was a a prominent member of the forensic community who testified about 
problems with Manners in the investigation, and he did some scientific, you know, he had some scientific testimony, and uh, I think he did like crime scene analysis and and things like that. So, you know, Cooper wasn't didn't have it wasn't sitting there with no help in his trial, and his defense was pretty tough on the investigation and the way it was handled. And there were problems. No investigation is perfect. And the farther back you go, the less perfect they become. Because what we know today about crime scene management, crime scene protection, crime scene integrity, those things were being developed. Those ideas and thought processes were being developed back in the 70s and 80s. And people who were sticklers so for those kind of things then. Hmm? So before that, there was a lot of contamination? or. Well, before that, the, one of the things that you have to remember is science in the 70s and 80s and probably into the beginning of the 1990s was pretty limited because DNA t- testing didn't exist in any way, shape, or form. And so there were there were limits to what you could do with evidence. You could examine it for fingerprints. You could examine fabric impressions. You could examine blood for uh, blood type and some genetic characteristics, enzymes, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There was no DNA testing. And the practice in the 70s and 80s and even some jurisdictions into the 1990s was once evidence had been tested to the limits of science at that time, there was no wearing gloves or uh, storing evidence separately once it had been tested. Once it was tested, it was like, hey, we're done with it, and it, it could all go into one box. And that's something people right. a, lot, a lot of people lose sight of. Um, again, people that were sticklers, like uh, about you know making lists of everybody who goes in and out, and they were kind of kooks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think everybody in, in medical profession, same thing. You know what we knew. How you handle things depends on what you know, and what we knew was severely limited. So, um, if the Ryan, but you know, I'll go on a limb and say, had the Ryan Hughes murders happened in 2001 instead of 1983, there would have been a lot more evidence implicating Kevin Cooper. Because some of the mishandling actually benefited him. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, because sitting awaiting his death. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because, you know, a lot of the things that, like the coveralls that were handed over by by Diana Roper, and were never picked up by homicide to be subjected to any kind of testing. 
Had those been picked up and subjected to testing, Cooper wouldn't be able to complain about them. Very because true. testing Very would have true. eliminated them as, as being related. That's just like we, right. we talked about with the uh, Bojangles with the Westlands 3. Mm-hmm. Had the blood in Bojangles been tested, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly never would have been able to bring up the incident in Bojangles. Right. It could have cleared or, you know, implicated the boys, and we would have had a clearer picture. Well, no, no. It's it's the fact that without any testing of that blood sample, mm-hmm. police could not say that Bojangles was absolutely not related because the blood did not come from any of the victims. Mm-hmm. It would not, Bojangles would not have implicated Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. But if they had tested the blood sample and it came back to an unknown African-American male. Right. They wouldn't have been able to bring up the incident in Bojangles at all. Well, that's what I'm saying. It would have been able to, you know, further take away another one of these theories had, you know. Correct. Sorry. When you said the boys... I'm sorry, I, I misunderstood when you said the boys. I thought you were referring to Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly and not the victim. Yeah. Yeah. Had, I misunderstood that. Mr. Bojangles, had they tested that evidence Mr. Bojangles had, they would have been able to either, you know, be like, okay, well, it's not the West Memphis Three, or they would have, you know, been able to sink their teeth further into Damien, Jason, and uh, Jesse. Right. So, um, so, uh, and then another another important aspect of the uh, trial testimony is that at trial, uh, a representative from Stridewright, who is the manufacturer of the tennis shoes from which Prince in the Lee's house and in the Ryan master bedroom as well as outside the Ryan house were linked, uh, testified that the shoes were distributed to institutional buyers. That's prisons, schools, juvenile facilities, and federal training facilities like uh, Forest Service, Navy, Marines, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, federal, they weren't sold. They weren't sold at Sears. They weren't sold at Penny's. They weren't sold at Montgomery Ward. Um, there is a limited possibility that a mom-and-pop shoe store in the mall might have had a few pairs. But according to the sales records from Stridewright, there were no records of any sales, even to mom and pop shoe stores in the mall. Uh, and that that's something that's going to come into play a little bit later. So putting it out there. Right. <laughs> so okay. um, after unsuccessful uh, direct appeal, state post-conviction, and federal first, I think two rounds of federal Uh, habeas corpus review, Cooper submitted a request under the new law in California in 2001 granting access to DNA testing. 
Right. And uh, the state, the prosecutor's office, and Cooper's defense were able to agree that they would uh, submit certain evidence from the case for testing by the lab at the California Department of Justice at Berkeley. And so an order was signed by the judge on 2000, on May 10th, 2001, pursuant to the joint testing agreement that had been entered, entered into between the parties. And so evidence was sent from uh, San Bernardino to the lab at, at the Department of Justice in California, and DNA testing was done in 2002 or 2001-2002. And the results right. came became available in 2002. And is this where Ingalls and Blake uh, changed their opinions on everything? or that That is correct. Um, after the results of that testing, Paul Ingalls, who had been working as uh, an investigator for the defense and had developed some... Uh, potentially useful post-conviction evidence. Uh, that was when he changed his uh, his opinion about Cooper's innocence or guilt. Right, um, and that's but, definitely a situation where you gotta see that as a win for as a prosecutor. You know, if you can flip somebody who's so vehemently working against you, then you know you definitely have to see that as a win. Right. Well, I I don't think it's the prosecutor that really flipped them. Uh, it's just the DNA results. Um, the testing was done, and this is also important to cover because a lot of people may not quite understand the process, and and it's an important thing to go over. What happened was the uh, testing was going to take place in two phases. The first phase, the evidence was sent to the Department of Justice lab to be evaluated for testing and then tested. So they received the uh, A41, which was the blood from the wall outside the master bedroom in the Cooper, I mean the Ryan residence, they received the uh, tan T-shirt, which was found on the side of the road and had never been used against Cooper by the prosecution, but was entered at the trial by the defense to illustrate how the police mishandled the investigation because here's this shirt, it's got blood from Doug Ryan on it, and they didn't do anything with it. Right. And then um, they also sent some of the hairs that were found in the victim's hands to be evaluated to see if they were sufficient for nuclear DNA testing. They sent the button found in the lease house, which was covered with blood. They sent the uh, hand-rolled cigarette found in the station wagon as well as a manufactured cigarette that was found in the station wagon. And so all of this evidence was evaluated. And 
during the course of the evaluation, they um, they did some swabbing on some shirt uh, on some of the evidence, and so the hatchet, for example, ended up having multiple pieces of evidence that were associated with the hatchet that were all tested for uh, DNA. Right. And so, um, for example, on the hatchet, they swabbed the two sides of the handle, and so that became L1A and L1B. Okay. And now they also were able to... Uh, a lot of the hairs had blood on them, so they were able to get the blood, recover the blood from the hairs. The hairs were not suitable for DNA testing because none of the hairs had roots attached or um, sheaths that would indicate that they had been pulled. They were cut, broken hairs, probably uh, some were probably shed hairs but none that had been pulled from the head of an attacker, as was alleged by uh, the defense. Okay. So basically okay. it was just hair that had fallen out of their head. It was hair that had either fallen out of the head or been cut and broken by a hatchet. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, and it's, it's an extensive list of items that were tested, but, um, without further ado, let's go to the results on the, uh, they found a DNA profile that they identified during the blind testing as male one and Male 1 was the major donor on A41 A and B, which was the blood stain from the wall. It was contained in, uh, there was some residue in a, an evidence container, and then there were pieces of plaster, because they had cut the plaster from the wall, that also was, they were able to obtain blood from that. And then uh, the, let's see, hang on a second. Uh, The hand-rolled cigarette butts were male one. The manufactured cigarette butt was male one. And there were five spots of blood on the T-shirt that were also male one. One of which, or two of which were probably mixtures. They okay. also identified a second they identified a second profile as male two and they found that on the T shirt uh blood recovered from hairs, uh blood stain on the hatchet, and two additional spot uh three additional spots on the T shirt in which male two was a minor contributor to those spots. Okay. Then they had so, male. Are they saying he had help? Pardon? No. Well, I, are they? I'm, I'm just going through. This is the they found DNA profiles, and I'm just going over the DNA profiles 
that they found on each of these individual pieces of evidence. Uh-huh. And then we'll, when, when we come to the second part of the testing, which was where they received references from the victims and Kevin Cooper, Okay. It will it will all be revealed. Okay. I'm so, done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Male they identified a third profile as male three. That profile was found on uh blood from some of the hairs. Uh in a mixture from one of the stains on the hatchet. And then they had a third, a fourth profile, female one, and that was also her. Uh, her profile was found on uh, hairs from blood from the hairs, rather, and on uh, the hatchet. And then finally, female two was uh, on some of the hairs, from uh, the blood from some of the hairs. Uh, a minor contributor from blood on one of the hairs. And then a minor contributor on a stain on the T-shirt. And a minor contributor on the stain on the hatchet. Right. All right. So... After they completed the testing and had the results for the, the profiles recovered from each of these items of evidence, then the Berkeley lab received reference samples from uh, each of the victims and Kevin Cooper and Josh Ryan. And let me go over, excuse me, um, the reference samples were from the sheriff's office and they were uh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, they received a, a card with a blood stain on the card from the sheriff's office. They also received a freshly drawn blood vial from Kevin Cooper taken by San Quentin Prison. And then they received reference blood stains, which would be a blood stain on a card, not a vial of blood, but a blood stain on a card uh, made probably at the time they were autopsied. And then they also, Josh Ryan, they apparently had taken blood from Josh Josh Ryan and they made a sample reference blood stain sample for him. So while the testing of the evidence was going on, they had none of these reference samples. Right. Okay. So uh-huh. uh, they had no access so they just to... Had the generalization. Correct. They just what they did basically is they they recovered DNA and they analyzed the DNA and they came up with DNA profiles for right uh, multiple three males and one uh, female three males and two females. Mm. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So Kevin Cooper 
his profile was consistent with the profile of male one. Okay. So the conclusion of the report is that there's strong evidence that he's the donor of the DNA extracted from a blood stain from the residence of A41, and he was a major donor on that. The hand-rolled cigarette, the manufactured cigarette, and a blood stain from the T-shirt. Okay. Uh, he was Mike. also consistent with being the donor of uh, additional stains, or rather two blood smears on the T-shirt. Uh, he was the major donor. Okay. And was a contributor to a mixture scene for blood spatter and an additional blood smear on the T-shirt. Doug Ryan was male two. His profile Mm -hmm. was consistent with male two. So his profile was, uh, he was the donor of DNA from the uh, T-shirt, which was actually a cutting that had been maintained by the San Bernardino Crime Laboratory. The T-shirt itself was in the evidence at the San Diego Superior Court. So the cutting and the T-shirt were actually kept in two separate places in the intervening years between Cooper's trial and the DNA testing. That will also come into play later, but we're going to continue with the DNA. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a few additional stains um, on the T-shirt that he was either a minor contributor or... Uh, was consistent with his DNA. He was also consistent with some of the blood mixtures found on the hatchet. Uh, The hairs from which they'd recovered blood were hairs that were recovered from Doug Ryan's hands or, I guess, Doug Ryan's hands. Mm -hmm. So he had his own blood on the hairs on his hands. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris Chris Hughes was male three. Uh, he too, uh, the the hairs recovered from his arms and his hands. It was his profile was consistent with the blood on those hairs. Mm-hmm. He was also a possible contributor to a mixture on the hatchet. Uh, and he was excluded as a possible contributor to any of the other evidence that was examined. Right. Right. Uh, Jessica Ryan was female one, and her DNA profile was consistent with the blood extracted from hairs on her hands. She was also a donor of uh, hatchet, a uh, blood stain on the hatchet, or blood stains found on the hatchet, and a minor contributor to blood uh, recovered from hair in Peggy's hands. Okay. And then yeah, uh, Peggy Ryan was her, she was female too, and she was 
the donor of the blood on the hair collected from her own hands. She was also a minor contributor to blood found on hairs in Doug's hands, which is consistent because they were in bed together, lying in bed next to each other when they were initially attacked. And she was also, uh, couldn't be excluded as a minor contributor to the mixture scene for uh, one of the hatchet blood scenes. Uh, They had no unknown DNA profiles on any of the evidence. Um, There was one, uh, one note that it was inconclusive as to whether Doug or Josh could be the minor contributor to uh, one of the blood states on A41A. Mm-hmm. And then on the hatchet blood stains, Jessica, Doug, and Chris were all included, but they couldn't rule out Peggy and Josh also being contributors to the mixture. Absolutely. And then, like I said, Peggy Ryan was a possible contributor to uh, one of the stains on the T-shirt. And so they were unable to determine whether Doug, Josh, Jessica, or Chris were contributors also to those to that one thing. So what we had from the DNA, the, the testing was done on the evidence, and then after that was concluded, then they received the reference samples to do the analysis. Right. So and there's no potential for contamination in the okay. DOJ lab. There's no potential for contamination during that process because, again, they didn't have reference samples at the time they were testing. They were just running the test and getting the numbers. And what they did was they tested one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine sites in addition to the uh, amylogenin, which is a male or female. Mm-hmm. Um, and the results were consistent. You know, the victim's blood was on the hairs on their own hands. Um, The victim's blood was on the hatchet. There were no unknown DNA profiles, no unknown unaccounted for contributors. Right. So um, that, you know, that's pretty damning for Cooper. And he had believed, he believed that that testing would uh, completely exonerate him. And I just want to go over on the evidence, the each piece of evidence with the DNA testing. The profile found on A41A is found in one in 310 billion African Americans, one in 270 billion Caucasians, and one in 340 Western Hispanics. What that means, as I understand it, is you could not go out and pull a random person off the street 
and find that they had the same DNA profile. Okay. Kevin Cooper. Mm-hmm. You would have to go right for 310 billion people before you would encounter that particular profile. And I would love it if you would reach out to somebody in the genetics department in Little Rock at one of the hospitals or at uh, the university to get a geneticist mm-hmm. on to talk about all these things kind of in lay terms. Mm, right. Uh, because yeah, absolutely. We can definitely I, do that. I, I can read and I can pretty fairly and accurately report. Summarize. Summarize, but I don't have that scientific background to know whether what I read is, is accurate and correct. Science right. and math and I have never been friends. They have been <laughs> like those awful step cousins that I hate that I never uh-huh. wanted around me. <laughs> right. And then um <laughs> the the profiles on the uh cigarette, the the hand rolled cigarette, one in hundred and ten million African Americans, one in sixteen million Caucasians, one in twelve million Western Hispanics. The hmm. manufactured cigarette one in 19 billion African Americans, one in 11 billion Caucasians, and one in 15 billion Western Hispanics. And finally, the the stain that was linked to Cooper on the uh, the major stain linked to Cooper on the T-shirt, one in 110 million African Americans, one in 16 million Caucasians, and one in 12 million Western Hispanics. Right, right. So, so basically, um, you know, the odds are astronomical. Right. And as I understand it, the, the odds are based not on, apparently, for every person, the combination of numbers at each site are going to be different. And it's when you have the numbers at one site combined with what's at the next site and the next site and the next site, that it makes it unique to each person. But that's why I'd love to get a geneticist on to explain that concept because I can't do it justice. Right. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so that pretty much, you know, that proved that Cooper was guilty. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The chances of it being anybody else are extremely low. Correct. Correct. So, um, of course, of course, after um, after that testing and the fact that the T-shirt and the cigarette butts and the blood from uh, the house all inculpated him, Cooper's next Mm -hmm. strategy was to claim that authorities in San Bernardino had planted his blood on A41 and the T-shirt. 
Of they've course. claimed they they've claimed that the cigarettes were planted that he smoked a lot of cigarettes in the lease house and what they did is they only collected one cigarette from the lease house which i i want to see those reports for myself before i'm going to believe that and um they then picked up other cigarettes in the lease house and put them in the car when they found it Mhm. And uh of course there was I mean there was information uh Cooper found the manufactured cigarettes in the lease house. So somebody in the lease house smoked. Right. So if they collected one cigarette butt from the lease house, they may have only collected the butt that they found in the closet where Cooper was sleeping. Mhm. And then not collected the other butts in other parts of the house because they didn't know whether they belonged to Cooper or not. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's their that's their claim is that the blood was planted. Now, when Cooper filed his initial request for testing in 1999, the San Bernardino Crime Lab did need to go and get the evidence and make sure that it was in a condition that would make testing possible. Uh, Daniel Gorgonis, who was one of the original crime lab people, he checked the evidence out, he evaluated it, and then he returned it. There's a lot of controversy. They claim that Gorgonis also had access to a vial of blood in the lab. Mm-hmm. And that he could have taken that vial of blood and planted blood on the T-shirt and on the A41. One of the reasons that I don't buy that is because, first of all, they haven't presented any evidence that he checked out Cooper's blood sample. At the time right. the evidence was checked out, um, especially by 1999-2001, those two things were kept separate. Mm-hmm. It's not like Cooper's blood sample was with all the evidence, and um, and Cooper's defense team really. They tend to conflate events to make things seem one way when they're another. So, um, plus the fact that as far as A41, when it was received by the the Berkeley Crime Lab, it was described as, um, let me get this, uh, a tube. Okay, let me see. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read you this description. Okay, A41, right. blood scrape from Ryan Ryan residence. It they received a tin pill box containing a paint chip and a capless perforated micro centrifuge tube. And then, mm-hmm. 
a microcentrifuge tube containing white particulate matter. Now, if I were going to plant blood, there would be some blood observable. Right, absolutely. In that pillbox or in the tube or in the other tube. And um, what they did for A41, the bloodstained paint chip was combined with a a swabbing of the blood test from the interior of the pillbox. Right. And then the uh, A41B, the entirety of the tube contents was sampled by using the original tube for the extraction. To me, that sounds like blood left over from 1983, not blood that was planted prior to testing. Right. Right, absolutely. That makes no sense. Yeah. And then the allegations regarding the the T-shirt, while the cutting that had been found to be consistent with Doug Ryan at the during 1983, that mm-hmm. was maintained at the crime lab. The T-shirt itself was received from the San Diego... Uh, Superior Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, The hatchet, the button, the hand-rolled cigarette, and the uh, T-shirt were all kept at the San Diego Superior Court. So Gregonis didn't have access to those. He can't plant blood on, on something he has no access to. Right, right. Well, Lisa, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We're about uh, we're, we 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 ran a little bit over, but we're right about halfway through <laughs> here tonight. So uh, so let's go ahead and take a commercial break, and when we come back, we'll finish things up here on uh, clearing convincing. All right, great. Sounds good. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
Hello, we're back. Are you yes, back, Michael? Yes, <laughs> yes, I'm outside sure taking a break, too. and we've got some bullfrogs <laughs> or something in the area. So, <laughs> a little unexpected guest. Y'all got all sorts of creatures down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, unlike Australia, everything won't kill you. That's true. Just the <laughs> cotton mouse and the gators. Yeah. So, but in Australia, like everything can kill you. <laughs> Pretty much the same as Southern Arkansas, but. So. Uh, we're pretty much talking about Kevin Cooper here, and, you know, he's trying his best, it seems like, to dispute DNA evidence that, you know, come on now, is indisputable. I mean, everything about this seems like a desperation. Hey, I'm just going to question everything, and if something sticks, well, good on us. Correct. That is exactly what it is. And really, for Kevin Cooper to be innocent, the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, the district attorney, the San Diego court clerk and personnel uh, would all have to be lying. And the California Attorney General's Office. There's this big conspiracy. Everybody's lying to Kevin, Kevin Cooper. Cooper right? right. Exactly. And um, there was another process at the time of the DNA testing where Edward Blake who was still working for Cooper's defense, examined the hairs that were found uh, on the victim's hands. Uh, first of all, Cooper's defense is misrepresenting the evidence. They're claiming hairs were found clutched in the victim's hands. And that is impossible. Right. Dead but, people I mean, can no more clutch something than they can throw it. None of this is successful at all. And I mean, we we mentioned it earlier. We have Paul and Edward changing their opinions based upon this DNA evidence, and it all pretty much boils down to you know he gets an execution date set. So right. What I what blows my mind on this is. You know, it's open and closed. How did he not die on that execution date? Because he was unsuccessful with the panel of the uh, U.S. Ninth Circuit. He filed right. a state writ. He filed requests for additional testing in the state courts that were denied. He uh, was unsuccessful once again in federal court. And he tried to stay his ex- execution, and a panel of the Ninth Circuit, who had reviewed his prior federal habeas claims, denied his request for a stay. But one mm-hmm. of the judges on the Ninth Circuit basically came in and decided, we are going to review this on bonk, which means 11 members of the court. Mm-hmm. And so they stepped in, they did a review, and they said, hey, 
He's made these tampering claims. He's claimed blood was planted on the T-shirt. He claims Gregon is tampered with evidence. Uh, he's entitled to mitochondrial DNA testing and EDTA testing, which is a preservative found in the blood, the blood vials when you have blood collected. Okay, maybe this is going to sound a little callous and cold and terrible, but because I realize a man's life's on the line. But why waste the money to do even more testing when you already know that it's almost a guarantee that it's him? Like, you, it makes no sense. Well, you know, the Ninth Circuit is actually very anti-death penalty. Shocking. And so they've been known to throw a wrench, a monkey wrench, into the works in many a California case. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. In Kevin Cooper's case, it stuck. And so he was allowed to return to federal district court and develop his claims of tampering and have mitochondrial DNA testing performed. Okay. And is that the All right. And I'm going to is that the on banc or and like I said Correct. I probably on banc, Yeah, that was the panel. Yeah. And and basically what they did is they came in, they granted him a stay of execution and they grant and they gave they granted his request to file an uh I think it was a third federal habeas corpus writ. Right. So um, he was granted the uh, mitochondrial DNA testing, which is the the testing on the hairs. Um, Mitochondrial DNA is passed unchanged from mother to child for generations. So my Mm -hmm. mother and her two brothers have the same mitochondrial DNA profile. My sisters and I have the same mitochondrial DNA profile. My grandmother and her 12 siblings have the same mitochondrial DNA profile. All of her sister's children have the same mitochondrial DNA profile. My nephew has the same mitochondrial DNA profile. Right. So basically just your family. Um, Correct. And mitochondrial DNA can't be used to identify a specific person. It can be used to either include or exclude, or rather to to exclude or can exclude. Okay. And prior to the the, uh, mitochondrial DNA testing, the hairs had been examined. Only three of them were suitable for an attempt at DNA testing, nuclear DNA testing. And none of those hairs yielded any nuclear DNA, those three hairs. So that was done and tried. The the claims that that have been made is, you know, these tests can exonerate Kevin Cooper and they won't let him have the test. Well... He's had the tests, and the nuclear DNA on those 
three hairs yielded no DNA. Okay. And then the mitochondrial DNA uh, was sent to a lab of Kevin Cooper's choosing, uh-huh. and those results were not exculpatory because all of the hairs found did not exclude Jessica, Peggy, or Josh Ryan. Three mm-hmm. hairs were from a domestic dog. No hairs were unidentified. Right. And there were some hairs in which it was inconclusive as to whether Kevin Cooper could even be eliminated. Okay. Uh, okay, so make of that what you will. And he, he he even got to choose the lab this time. So, I mean, it's not Correct. like they're not bending over backwards trying to be like, dude, we know Correct. it's you. Hey, Come on now. He, he likely got to choose the lab because uh, the Berkeley lab at that time may not have done or, or been... Uh, Able to qualify to do mitochondrial DNA. Um, okay. And there's there's one thing that has come up in connection with the mitochondrial DNA, which mm-hmm. is being vi- so misrepresented by the uh, defense. They claim that the vial of Cooper's blood was examined by this Dr. Melton who did the mitochondrial DNA testing, and that she found two blood types. The evidence that she actually received as a reference for Kevin Cooper was received from the DOJ lab, and it was the reference card that he had received in 2002. not the vial, the reference card. She found two mitochondrial DNA profiles on that, from that reference card. Right. Not two nuclear DNA profiles, two mitochondrial DNA profiles from the reference card. The defense says the vial is contaminated. But the reference card that she received was the card received by the DOJ during the original testing. And during their original testing, there was only one DNA profile, and it belonged to Kevin Cooper. And it was a nuclear DNA profile. Also, interesting to note that on three pieces of the evidence that she tested for mitochondrial DNA, there was contamination in her lab. Absolutely. And I I mean, everything mounts up. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, how, how at this point do you not just 
go ahead and yeah. I don't know. And and one of the one of the evidence one of the evidence hairs that was tested from uh the mitochondrial DNA had two a mixture of two or more mitochondrial DNA types. So Right. So I would guess there's something, there's something, there was some problem at her lab when she was running the testing. Because it wasn't just Kevin Cooper's reference sample that came up with two mitochondrial DNA types. Mm-hmm. It was also one of the evidence samples, and they did identify contamination on three other uh, reagent blanks. Right. Right, and this this is another reason I want a geneticist because I want somebody to explain the process uh-huh. of the testing. Step one, step two, step three. Right, and break it down for so, right, and you know one of the reasons that that um, that's significant to me is because there were hearings held and Dr. Melton presumably testified regarding the DNA, the mitochondrial DNA testing she performed and the results she obtained and yet at no time during that testimony did they ever ask her about irregularities with the reference sample. Right. Right. And I mean, everything, absolutely everything this guy is trying. And like I said, at this point, at this point, you're just running into, you're just running into, uh, hey, I'm going to throw everything at the wall and see if I can save my life and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, go from there. Now, I did see something here that struck me, and I can't for the life of me place it. I know I've heard of it, but I can't for the life of me place it. The Brady claim? What's a Brady claim? All right. One of the claims that Cooper raised in his writ to uh, get a stay of execution and the successive writ that he filed, that he was trying to file prior to his execution, was that the warden at CIM had told the defense that the tennis shoes were not, quote, prison manufacturer or prison issue and were available in retail stores. Okay. So the Brady claim, the warden claimed to have talked to the sheriff's office and or the district attorney's office and said, hey, you're putting this evidence on and it's not right. Okay. And so on the basis of that, it became a Brady claim. Unfortunately, at the hearing, it turned out that the warden's statements to the defense were not based on her personal knowledge. She hadn't looked at any of the contracts that were entered as part of the trial mm-hmm. that were obtained from CIM. They, she didn't look at any of the contracts with Stridewright with, from the California Department of Corrections. Basically, she heard about this and said to one of her subordinates, 
is this true? And they said, no, it's not. And so then mm-hmm. she she ran with that. So okay, her her information was wrong. Right. So yet another uh, instance of hey, we're not going to research this. We're just going to get something and then we're going to run with it. Correct. Correct. And you know her. The other thing that was that was kind of funny was she kept these meticulous notes about Cooper. And the case. Uh-huh. But there were no notes regarding any conversations with the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office or the San Bernardino Prosecutor's Office. Right. Right. There were, however, notes about her talking to the defense. Mm-hmm. And there was a note in the defense file about trying to secure her testimony for the trial. Right. Which kills the Brady claim because the defense knew if the defense knew about her prior to the trial, then they must have had other good reasons for not having her testify. The same way they didn't have Diana Roper testify. Right. Absolutely. If it's not gonna, so, if it's not gonna, uh, me, why have it? Te- why have him testify? Well, and and what I think having Mitch Carroll get up there during the defense case and testify. Oh no, we bought, you know, Chino bought those at Sears. We mm-hmm. didn't get those directly from Stride, right? So her credibility would have been totally, totally blown because. Right. The jury had testimony from Strideright, people with firsthand knowledge, I might add, and the contracts and the documents showing that CIM purchased 1,300 shoes uh, in the, I think, early spring of 1983. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and another thing that that the defense has claimed is that the uh, the pattern impressions are uh, from a common shoe pattern, and in reality, the sole on the Proked dudes that was the only time Strywright used that sole on any of its shoes. Right. That soul, right. that pattern, the diamond pattern, was unique to the Proket dudes. Okay. Okay, so I mean, so, once again, completely eliminating everything else. Right. But this is, the, the pattern in Cooper's case has been to rehash and rehash and rehash. And try to run out the Think, clock. Things that were rejected at trial by the jury, they bring in new witnesses that say they have information, and those witnesses testify and are not found to be credible. And the witnesses who did come forward in 1983, they're found to be credible. Like the Canyon Corral Bar, they, they found two witnesses who claimed to have been in the Canyon Corral Bar mm-hmm. and saw the three men. Right. But... 
you know, the men they saw were all covered in blood and wearing coveralls. Right. Covered in blood. Absolutely. So, kind of like, kind of like, kind of like Bojangles. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um... Uh Mm-hmm. So they the the federal district court, of course, you know the mitochondrial DNA results, the hairs, the victims, or Jessica, her mother and brother, could not be excluded as the source of the hairs. Right. There were no unknown hairs. There were three dog hairs, and um, there was one hair that. Uh, was inconclusive as to whether Chris was excluded or not, and four hairs that were inconclusive as to whether Kevin Cooper could be excluded based on mitochondrial DNA. So that's the mitochondrial DNA, and and currently he's pushing for DNA testing on hairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, he's not pushing for DNA testing on the hair found in the Ryan Station wagon, He's not pushing for DNA testing on the hairs found in the lease house that were consistent with Jessica and Doug. He just wants to keep the uh, same... He just wants to submit the evidence that's going to, you know, maybe possibly, you know, let him off. Right. Well, I think what was happened what happened was they were they were hoping that one or more of those hairs would not would be quote unknown DNA. Mhm. And then they could argue intruders. But right. their own mitochondrial DNA analysis there's no intruders. There's no unknown, unknown hairs. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if if there's no unknown hairs, then hey, there's no case to say hey. You know, and right. if well, you can throw in that doubt, maybe you can save your life. Right. And there's there's just no basis for the claim of intruders. Mm-hmm. For a multitude of reasons, the primary being that um, there has never been any evidence, credible evidence, consistent with intruders. The blood right. type, the intruders were allegedly white males. No unknown white male DNA was found on any evidence. It either right. belonged to the victims, and then you've got one instance of African American male DNA being found. That's Kevin Cooper. I mean, everything's there, present, and accounted for. Right. Exactly. So, and that's what, in all this DNA testing, no unknown DNA. Right. Right. So what? happens at the hearings for at the uh district court at the United States district court that he gets well you know like i said basically um 
Cooper put on, he had new witnesses who claimed to have been in the Canyon Corral bar. He had the uh, warden at CIM. And uh, as an aside, I think the warden at CIM was trying to ease her own conscience. Mm-hmm. Cooper escaped on her watch. And so I think she convinced herself by about 2001 that if Cooper could be exonerated for the Ryan Hughes murders, then they weren't her fault because his escape was not related to the murders. Right. And so, um, but, you know, and it turned out her information wasn't new. She had talked to Paul Ingalls extensively and given him access to her records in 2001, mm-hmm. which means right. that Cooper's attorney sat on that information for about two years, possibly three years, before they ever filed a writ on it. Mm-hmm. And under the federal rules, you can't do that. Once you discover information, you have one year. Mm-hmm. to file it and to, you know, try to have it heard by the court. And, right. you know, Cooper's, Cooper's attorneys didn't do that. They held it for at least two years, maybe even three. Okay. And so, um, they, so is that the case they use, or is that what they used to deny the writ? Well, the the writ was denied. Judge Huff wrote a very detailed and very uh, lengthy opinion. I think it came out to 180-some-odd pages in which she addressed each one of Cooper's claims, addressed the evidence presented by Cooper, addressed the rebuttal evidence, presented by the prosecution and then determined whether or not the uh, claim had any merit. Mm -hmm. And all of the claims were either dismissed because they were defaulted because Cooper didn't raise them sooner Mm -hmm. or they simply lacked merit. Right. And um, he wasn't entitled to relief. And so she denied his uh, successive writ. And then the Ninth Circuit goes ahead and affirms that, which is surprising because it seems like the Ninth Circuit's been looking for an excuse to save this dude. Well, the panel uh, that has – the three-judge panel – that has looked at Cooper's case several times uh, has mm-hmm. not, you know, they have, they have affirmed and they have put mm-hmm. out some good opinions as well. Uh, I believe there right. was one opinion uh, where one of the judges did dissent mm-hmm. uh, because that be she special? found, no, that was another, a different judge. She did find some of Cooper's evidence to be uh, more persuasive than the other two members of that panel. 
Judge okay. Fletcher was basically Cooper attempted to have another en banc review. And okay. the actually the en banc review was denied. And mm-hmm. Fletcher was dissenting from that. And he wrote uh, 85 or 101 pages. It depends on the platform that you use. Um, he wrote a long dissent. The problem with his dissent is that he treated the issues as though they were new. Okay. And he marshaled the evidence in the light most favorable to Cooper. So, for example, where Cooper's own experts' EDTA testing did not Mm -hmm. find elevated levels of EDTA, Judge Fletcher said he did. And EDTA is a preservative, and it is found in laundry detergent, hand cream, uh, multiple things besides blood tubes. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you ran a test on the T-shirt I'm wearing right now, you might find background levels of EDTA from my laundry detergent. Right. Um, it's a normal. It's a normal. Correct. Thing. Correct. And there was one controversy. The the state lab, um, the testing was done at an independent laboratory hired by the state. Mm-hmm. He found elevated levels of EDTA across the board, including one control that was supposed to have a reading of zero EDTA because mm-hmm. it was a blank. It was supposed to be a blank. So okay. uh, when when you do the testing, and again, having a scientist would be so much easier. You have your question sample, and then you have a known sample. And in the EDTA EDTA testing, what they did is they took blood and they planted it on a T-shirt. And then they made Mm -hmm. a, a, a test swab or whatever from that. And so that you knew was going to have 1,100 nanograms of EDTA mm-hmm. because you know it was contaminated from a blood tube. Mm-hmm. And then you had a control that is supposed to have zero EDTA in it. Okay. And then samples from different samples from different parts of the T-shirt. And what happened with the state was that he found elevated levels of EDTA all across the board. Mm-hmm. And in Judge Fletcher's opinion, he even went through and said, well, this is how we know there's elevated EDTA because you take what Cooper's expert got and what this expert got, you kind of aggregate them, and then you've got elevated levels of EDTA or something something along those lines. Um, right. But Cooper's expert, in the question sample from the evidence t-shirt 
that was supposedly contaminated with blood from a vial of Cooper's blood had the lowest reading of EDTA of all the evidence tested by Cooper's expert. It was like 110 nanograms. It was less than 10% of what it should have had if it had been poured onto that T-shirt from Purple Top Tube. And the other reason the claims about the tampering and the planting of blood on the T-shirt fail is the T-shirt was kept in San Diego. So basically, the scenario would be somebody in the San Bernardino crime lab plants Kevin Cooper's blood on the T-shirt but never tests it Uh and never links it to Cooper. Okay. And then at trial, Cooper's defense attorney takes the T-shirt and says, see, they didn't do a good job because they didn't find out who this belonged to, and it's got the victim's blood on it. Right. And then it became defense exhibit in the trial. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the trial, it stayed in San Diego Superior Court. Okay. Yeah. So they so, planted they evidence. They didn't use it. And then 20 or 18 years later, 19 years later, DNA testing finds Kevin Cooper's blood. Wow. Well, that's it, it doesn't make story. any sense. It, yeah, if they're going to plant, if they had planted blood on a T-shirt, why wouldn't they have planted enough blood to test in 1983 and said, it's Kevin Cooper? We just linked this to right. Kevin Cooper and the victim. And then we're done. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't understand, but... Uh, so... You know, looking at 2010, he puts in a clemency petition. So if I'm understanding what clemency is, basically that's, okay, you guys win, I'm guilty, whatever. Now I'm just going to fight for my life and try to get life in prison, correct? No, no, not not entirely, not generally. Uh, Uh Clemency petitions, in none of Cooper's clemency petitions does he acknowledge that he is guilty. Mm-hmm. The clemency petitions rehash the evidence from his trial, re- resurrected the tampering allegations, resurrected the claims that they've proven tamperings because they found elevated levels of EDTA on the T-shirt. Uh, right. Tampering allegations that Doug Gregonich checked out this evidence and then uh, you know, contaminated it and then returned it the next day. And in the 2010 petition, I think one of the things they were seeking was for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was about to leave office, to grant mm-hmm. some sort of new investigation and or additional testing. Right. And, you know, now they want to do touch DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Which, 
because of the way evidence was handled in the 1980s and 1990s, problematic because you don't know. You're going to probably find unknown DNA because right. it could come from a juror. It could come from an officer who's now deceased. It could come from a an attorney or some court personnel. Um, that you can't get a reference sample. And, and one of the things with DNA, for DNA to tell you anything, you have to have a reference sample to compare it to. Right. So that was one of the arguments I always made with the Bojangles blood. Even if they had tested it, all they would have been able to do was eliminate Chris, Michael, and Steve as sources of that blood. But it would have told them nothing about the man in Bojangles, except maybe that he was African-American. Right. And maybe what blood type he may have had. Um, If they did DNA testing, they would have had a DNA profile, but it Uh would not come with a name and address. And so with touch DNA testing you're likely going to have multiple instances of of unknown DNA because the people from whom you need reference samples for it to have any meaning are no longer around to give reference samples. Right. This guy disappeared into the night. Or died. Yeah. Or, you know, has been deceased for 10 years. Yeah. Or, uh, or yeah, per, you know, perhaps a juror who is no longer living in California and has moved back to the Northeast where he was born and raised, mm-hmm. and he's got a name like John Smith, and they and have nothing to suggest where in the Northeast he might be. Mm-hmm. You know, but he's no longer living in California. Um, right. So it, it, it's it's just uh, it is problematic. And right, right. Cooper is trying to wage a war of attrition by el- trying to eliminate evidence. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, I just don't. I don't think that's going to happen. So did the DA really take two years to respond to the clemency, or what's the response to the The, the 2010 clemency petition, I don't think that the DA even responded to. Arnold Schwarzenegger was due to leave our office, and he uh-huh. received the petition maybe a month before he was due to leave office, and so he declined to act on it. And he left office. And then Cooper attempted to get additional DNA testing through Superior Court in San Diego. That request was denied. So he filed a lawsuit in federal court against the district attorney, uh, one of the analysts with the DOJ crime lab, Daniel Gregonis, several members of the sheriff's office, uh, alleging constitutional violations and 
Section 1983 violations, and it wasn't successful. The district court dismissed it. The uh-huh. Ninth Circuit affirmed, and Cooper lost his chance to appeal to the California Supreme Court. Right. Uh, the denial of DNA testing by the Superior Court, probably because he knew that wasn't going to work anyway. Um, right. But yeah, he filed a clemency petition in 2016 rehashing all of the old evidence, claiming to have new evidence of people who saw three white males in the Ryan station wagon and to have written down the uh, license plate number, which, unfortunately for them, was published in the newspapers. So anybody Mm -hmm. who could find the story on the L.A. Times could find the license plate number of the Ryan's vehicle. Um, and rehashing the Canyon Corral bar and with a theory that a man by the name of Clarence Ray Allen killed the Ryans, ordered Lee Furrow to kill the Ryans because of a Mm -hmm. horse deal that went bad. And one of the problems with that theory is that Clarence Ray Allen was known to have Opelousa horses, which are the American spotted horses. Right. The Ryans race Arabians. And if you look at the slideshow on the uh, episode page, I have pictures of Arabians. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, a, a horse person is going to have thoroughbreds, Morgan horses, Tennessee walking horses, Opelousas, Arabians, Percherons, Belgian draft horses. You know, they're gonna they're gonna stick to the, the breed that they specialize in. Right. A person no. like me would have Appaloosas and Arabians and Percherons and draft horses and Clydesdales and Donkeys and mules and anything, anything <laughs> with four hooves. <laughs> right. If right. I had the land and a stable. And there are a couple of Kentucky Derby winners that when they're ready to retire from the breeding shed, I would love to have them. Yeah. But um, Take them too. Clarence, Clarence Allen wasn't a, an Arabian person. He was an uh-huh. Appaloosa person. And another glitch in that theory is that in 1983, Clarence Ray Allen had been on death row for a uh, murders committed in 1977 or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'd been on death row for about two years. Right. Uh, prior to going to death row at San Quentin, he had been in Folsom Prison since 1977. Okay. So I I find it extremely unlikely that he had spent six years in Folsom Prison worrying about a horse deal that went bad. Right. And decided after six years to take revenge on the on the uh, Ryans. And another problem is that 
Uh, Clarence Ray Allen went to death row for arranging the murders of two people. In addition to those two people, he wanted several people who had testified against him at his 1977 murder trial dead. Uh One of those people was Lee Furrow. Mm -hmm. So given that Lee Furrow was an intended target of Clarence Ray Allen, I think it would be highly unlikely that he would be a person that Clarence Ray Allen would turn to to commit another murder because Lee Furrow testified against him with the last murder that he had Lee Furrow commit. Right. Um, And I want to say one thing, too. Lee Furrow committed Uh a murder. He admitted his guilt. He testified against Allen. He served his time and was released, I think, in 1982. And he has been a productive member of society since 1982. He has had no contact with law enforcement, has gotten into no trouble, has done nothing wrong Mm -hmm. 36 years. He was not the person who killed Doug, Peggy Ryan, Jessica Ryan, and Chris Hughes, and almost killed Josh Ryan. It's fantasy. And there's not a shred of evidence that supports it. Right. So, right. I would um, you know, there, there. When you look at any, you know, they have all these different things. Well, you know, his mother, his stepmother, had a house in Long Beach, and the car was found near her house in Long Beach. Well, Kevin Cooper had ties to Long Beach. He had people in Long Beach that probably helped him get to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they just haven't come forward. And then they're rehashing Josh, Josh's statements. But, you know, Josh was a traumatized eight-year-old kid. He had severe mm-hmm. head injuries. Um, he's never specifically identified Kevin Cooper. He's made a lot of statements. And, you know, the statements are more, a lot of the statements are more consistent with a single attacker rather than multiple attackers. Because multiple attackers, none of the victims would have made it out of their bedrooms. Right. Everybody was found in the master bedroom, except Jessica, who was in the hallway right outside the door. And there's evidence from the blood on her mother that she probably came to the door, saw her mother on the floor, went to her mother, and was attacked and injured, tried to get away, made it as far as the hallway, and then Cooper killed her. There's all, and there's this stuff about, oh, Peggy, you know, Peggy clutched her daughter as she died. No, because Peggy and, you know, Jessica died several feet from Peggy. Peggy couldn't right. have been clutching her when she died. Jessica found Peggy bled on Peggy and then was, you know, was killed in the hallway. Right, right. And, um, the, you know, like I said, the DA, the DA responded, and I'll post a link to that response on the, um, on the uh, WordPress page mm-hmm. because it, it kind of goes through all these 
all these claims and, and really explains why they just don't hold any water. Nice. Nice. So now we're to where Governor Bryan is requesting additional information. What's he requesting information for? I mean, is he getting ready to make a, you know, to possibly set a date? Well, he is he's requesting additional information in connection with the clemency request and the request for additional testing uh-huh. made by Cooper. And so he's evaluating that. I don't think um, the moratorium on death uh, death sentences or, or, or the moratorium because of the execution protocol has been lifted in 2016, I believe. But um, I don't think any death warrants have been signed. Okay. And I, I don't. I don't know that the governor actually sets the execution date. I'll have to research that for the uh for the update episode in two weeks from tomorrow. Okay. Uh or one week from tomorrow. I'm losing <laughs> track. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, kind of running together. But, but he, he's requesting yeah. He's requesting more information as to uh, the DNA testing that Cooper wants done. Well, hey, and it's never it's never bad to have all the information in front of you. Uh, a lot of a lot of media sources have taken that to mean that he's going to grant DNA testing, but mm-hmm. um, I have not read the. Full request itself, uh, mm-hmm. but from what was quoted in one article that I found, he may not be <laughs> considering granting it. Um, right, because there were there were some comments in the article that I found that the question sounded a bit on the skeptical side, as far as the. Uh, propriety of DNA testing at this point in time, especially given the evidence as a whole to date. Right, right. So, speaking of tomorrow, obviously tonight a special episode of Clear and Convincing. What do you have on tap for us tomorrow night for uh, our, when we return to our normal time slot? <laughs> Tomorrow night we're going to be talking about uh, Christopher Anthony Young. Uh, Young was convicted of a murder in San Antonio and was just recently executed by the state of Texas last week. Okay. Last Tuesday. Okay, I believe fact. I actually saw a story on that uh, before he was executed, so this should be... This should definitely be interesting to see uh, what's yeah. going on there as far as uh, what led to, you know, his eventual death last week. So I certainly can't wait to do this again tomorrow night. Uh, obviously, want everybody no, me to neither. Yes, please. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. 
If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at Clear and Convincing, uh, Clear and Convincing Podcast com, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us tomorrow night for episode 14, State of Texas versus Christopher Anthony Young. Young was convicted of a 2004 capital murder of Hodge Patel that occurred during an attempted armed robbery of Mr. Patel's store in San Antonio. In spite of pleas for clemency from Mr. Patel's son, Mike Hesch, Young was executed at Huntsville on Tuesday, July 17, 2018. We'll be talking about Mr. Young's case and uh, the controversy over the failure to grant him clemency. Hope you'll join us. Thank you, everybody. Good night.